Being part of a global movement and also hearing about our colleagues, it actually motivates us that it's not our struggle, it's a struggle, it's a global struggle. And it, to me, it actually creates the need for building solidarity so that when we have transnational corporations, then we have transnational movements which can actually take on the transnational corporations to liberate the production system so that they can be producing for themselves. What you just heard is a bit of a panel about food sovereignty in Copenhagen in June. In the panel, two activists from the South and East African region of the global peasant movement La Via Campesina spoke about the struggle for a just and sustainable food system. The Bridge Radio had the chance to talk to them about the connections between patriarchy, the EU and an unjust food system, how this relates to migration and how to fight it. This is my don't like the sun. So we are here in the studio of the Bridge Radio together with uh, La Via Campesina who are visiting Copenhagen. Um, so we're going to talk about their work and the struggle for food sovereignty. So first I would ask you to introduce yourself and the group. Okay, thank you very much for welcoming to the Bridge Studio. I'm David Otieno from Kenya. I'm a small-scale farmer from Western Kenya, that is in Migori County, southwest Kenya, around 350 kilometers from the capital city. I also am a member of peasant movement called the Kenyan Peasants League, which is a, a movement trying to mobilize peasant farmers so that they can come together, preserve their seeds, share indigenous knowledge, and generally practice a food system that promotes climate justice. So we, KPL uh, is also part of the La Via Campesina, which is a global movement uh, that has membership across the world. We are in the La Via Campesina Southern East African region. Yeah, thank you. Hi, my name is Mateusz Costa Santos. I am part of the regional secretariat of La Via Campesina Southern and Eastern Africa and also supporting Via Campesina at a continental level as Via Campesina Africa. And I'm based in Maputo, Mozambique, where from where I take part in the activities of the movement. We have a small team of three activists, staff support, based in Tanzania and Zimbabwe. And the three of us compose the regional secretariat of La Via Campesina in southern and eastern Africa region. Okay, thank you. And thank you for being here with us in the studio. So first, we would like to hear maybe if you can explain to us what is food sovereignty and how do you struggle for food sovereignty? Food sovereignty is basically total control of the food system or the food production system right from ownership to land or on land, the seeds that we as farmers plant, the farm inputs, the distribution system 
and even marketing and you realize that food sovereignty itself is a food production system that ensures that as farmers we don't depend on market forces for example you realize that the current food production system in the world basically is uh, driven by market forces and the system right from the production of seeds which is I can say that there are seeds that are genetically engineered to withstand pesticides to withstand herbicides so you realize that the all of this process is fossil fuel intensive such that uh, it contributes a lot to the emissions that cause climate change you find that even the distribution process of distributing these foods from the supermarkets supermarkets i mean you find that maybe a, a crop is produced somewhere in uh, migori where i come from it is transported maybe to the us to be processed and then brought back so you find that all of this process uh, the farmer is not at the center so what we are as food sovereignty is basically places human beings uh, the farmers the consumers at the center of the whole system it means that we must have total ownership of the process remove it from the market and basically ensure that we produce food for our own livelihoods for our own tables so that we can continue living out for profit so in the current context of our globalized industrial food system food sovereignty provides us or offers and proposes embodies uh, the desires of uh, civil society and social movements from across the world and gives a key tool and a paradigm uh, of resistance to the global food system to the global industrialized food system which is unhealthy unnutritious and guided by profit on uh, on the expense of the livelihoods of the global population not only the global south the global north as well uh, but also the environment uh, and also food sovereignty offers us an alternative of what this new food system could be food sovereignty is a concept that in its specificities it's fluid it's organic it's continuously developing under the principles that were explained by by CD and also it offers us a framework for transition from this globalized industrial food system to a food system that is more uh, responsive to the needs and desires of the people of the world uh, and also that is more resilient to climate change in an age of climate change which the scientific consensus tells us that it's going to be like this for a long time so we need our food system to be able to adapt and withstand and also at the same time mitigate uh, the causes uh, of climate change talking about uh, creating food sovereignty i wanted to ask like more specifically how you create this ownership of the food by the farmers practically how it happens yeah thank you very much first of all you know uh, the farmers are organized into Mm-hmm. And the first step in fact even before you like instantly before you join the movement we must know that you are a farmer mm-hmm. and uh, you must be visited mm-hmm. and we know that you actually practicing uh, organic farming and we need to know uh, what kind of crops you are growing so the first step is that uh, in a cluster in each and every homestead there must because the one of the narratives that has been propagated by the food production system by is the, that um, uh, this uh, i mean uh, indigenous seeds are not available. they are not in the, i mean they are not reliable and the seeds improved seeds are they are everywhere but while in real sense you find that uh sometimes even this first step is to start by ensuring that um the seeds are available uh, banking them in their own homesteads them and therefore also creating community seed banks where mm. for example if there's another cluster somewhere uh, maybe that does not have the seeds they can be shared with them mm-hmm. 
So you know that that is the first step of ensuring that we create ownership of the seed, so that we uh, farmers can plant when they want. Uh, find that uh, those farmers who are planting or relying on industrially uh, produce seed. Sometimes they have to wait because of uh, hoarding or because of they are being transported. Sometimes the whole idea of peasant agroecology, uh, uh, trying to ensure that the cut production that is is done, we don't consider earth as a commodity. Of the soil as a that has to be milked, we must extract mm. the maximum we can get from it. Mm. But we look at soil or land as part of the cycle. Mm. It's alive. Soil is alive, and that's mm. why it's giving food. Mm. But you find that um, in the conventional energy, I mean, uh, chemical intensive, you find that sometimes to spray to uh, because you want to. Uh, deal with the fall armyworm, but in the process you have other microorganisms mm -hmm. in the soils that are necessary to to maintain the life of the soil. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, the issue, the whole issue of recycling uh, nutrients, nothing is lost in the. So now the soil, the, the the maize that we plant, or the beans that we plant, or the potatoes that we plant, we get the seeds from there, replant them, and uh, and at the same time recycle nutrients through process of composting. So in the process, the soil is alive, and as we, and as much as we as human beings need food, uh, in the same way, the soil needs to replenish itself so that it can continue being productive. We also have other biodiversity in the soil that that depends in one way or another how you eat or, or or deal with the soil. So you find that uh, we must diversify, so that you find that in the whole process of peasant agroecology is not monocropping whereby you, you have to clear forests uh, and then plant one particular crop. Mm. So you find that in a small piece of land, like I, I like the land that I till is like, and you'll find that in that piece of land there's maize, there's beans, there's, there's vegetables, traditional vegetables, there are fruits, and we also have processes of, of, of preserving these indigenous seeds that were there. So you find that a small piece of land can be able to feed um, I mean, uh, uh, give. We find that agroecology, in real sense, is uh, uh, basically a response uh, or a way of life. Prove that, in real sense, we can be able to practice this system, which is very sustainable, and it's not. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it's some forces somewhere which have to control us. And maybe my colleague can be able to add something. Yeah. Uh, what I would add to that uh, is that. As CD has mentioned, for us as Via Campesina, we see peasant agroecology as the key root, key tool to achieve food sovereignty. Coming from a production background, we see agroecology as an approach, peasant agroecology as a key paradigm to look at food production systems and make them function in a way that is not only environmentally sustainable, but is also socially just, is culturally appropriate, and locally owned and controlled. So food sovereignty through agroecology in our organization as Via Campesina offers us a framework for political incidents, for access to natural resources such as land, such as water, and other resources such as governmental supports for extension services or other types of, uh, of needs for the community really, because it's not just about production, it's about the life of the community. So there's health issues, there are education issues, access to energy, uh, and so on and so forth. Also, it's a key framework and a platform for mutual learning. For us, as Via Campesina, we have adopted the Campesino to Campesino model, which translates to farmer-to-farmer -farmer model of learning, which is based in mutual learning, understanding that farmers have knowledge themselves, 
and through the sharing of realities, of experiences, of challenges, that provides for a much richer and much more effective way of, uh, of, uh, of learning. Finally, I would say that the food sovereignty concept also gives us a way to understand and reconceptualize the access to markets. Mm -hmm. So we, in this under, under food sovereignty, the focus is bottom-up distribution. So first mm -hmm. is the household, then the community, then the region, then the country, then internationally. So first is your right and your need for healthy, nutritious food for your family for your own livelihood, for your children to grow strong and intelligent with all the nutrients they need to develop their bodies for them to their maximum capacities in an, an environment where they are close to nature, where they live close to their families, where their families can have a better chance of stability, of security. So those are some of the elements that, that food sovereignty brings to our struggle and really tries to to bring together uh, the different forces and the different interests of people who really want to see change in this world. It's really interesting to hear about agriculture and how could a better food system look. And now I'm thinking to ask you, what do you see as the consequences of the unjust food system that is there today? Yeah, you find that uh, the current food system is not only unjust but colonial mm -hmm. in the sense that it is driven by the urge to control You see, Africa, uh, Kenya is coming from a colonial history where the colonial power sought to control land. And in fact, today, the land issue in Kenya, which is a key factor in production, is still not in the hands of the small-scale farmers. And the, also the consequence of such system is patriarchy, where you realize that uh, it's a system that seeks to oppress, marginalize, exploit the women and the poor in general. You find that it's a system that if you look at even the flower farms, for example, in Kenya, you look at the, the coffee farms, the coffee taken in, in Copenhagen, here is being produced under conditions. You find that you can say they're poison because women, uh, youth are working under conditions where they don't have protective gear and they work in, not in their farms but the farms are owned by multinationals. You see, like you go to the Kericho tea zones, you find that uh, they are owned by multinationals. So you find that this current food system is, is colonial. It seeks to oppress, subjugate, uh, and make us as farmers, uh, I mean in Africa and in the global south, and even farmers, because even when we were here in Copenhagen, we, we met farmers from Denmark, these small-scale farmers. Again, they, they are also facing the same, same things. Because the system seeks to strangle the small-scale production. And if you look at peasant agroecology, actually it solves the problem of patriarchy. Because you find that it's a, being a route to full sovereignty, it means things that everybody within the community has a right to access this resource and use it sustainably, not driven by the urge of maximizing on somebody's labor maximizing on somebody's situation that these people perhaps don't have access to some resources and therefore they need. So the whole process of commodification of food production from the seed to the harvest to the distribution to your table in itself creates a slave population. Uh, people who grow crops that they cannot eat. You find that you have a piece of land, you grow coffee in Uganda, for example. Once you grow coffee, you can't uproot it. It's your land. The whole idea of contract farming. You find that in Kenya, I come from a sugar growing area. If for you to uproot, you are given fertilizers and you must use them. 
because if you say for example like my own mother was arrested one time because when the company called Stony Shore company which now you know when it came people were saying oh let's let's go to cash crops but the land was fertile so you find that they come and give fertilizer and the, the following day when they come and you have not used it they arrest you despite the fact that your soil is doesn't need the chemicals so you find that this whole process presses people uh, and that's why we you find that in these clusters of farmers which meets occasionally you find that everybody has got access to information everybody like when there this like my colleague talking about the farmer to farmer dialogues you find that in those dialogue spaces people have free access to information people can express their ideas people with some knowledge can be able to pass them from one place to another so in real sense you realize that peasant agroecology is a struggle against unjust colonial food production system that is not only oppressing the workers and the landowners but does not care about the consequences on climate does not care about the quality of people take what is it what drives them is the urge to make profit yeah so currently we can see this colonialization trade or trend in the food systems in our region in sub-saharan africa as many of these uh, multinational interests throughout the whole with interests throughout the whole value chain or food value chain from seeds to inputs to distribution to to marketing and so on which is takes the shape of a neocolonialization of our food systems many of our countries with the exception perhaps of the case of South Africa which has quite a unique uh, structure of a very industrialized food system compared to other countries in the region but most of the countries have gone through some sort of a period of revolution which kind of created a breaking point in the direction or in the way food systems were during colonial times nowadays as these countries get reintegrated into the global economy they have to adhere to the governing norms of what would be a nation in a globalized economy so they have to make concessions on and reorganize and direct their national development uh, policies in order to be able to have a competitive advantage in this globalized free market which is idealized by capitalism but which is even not in itself a reality in our world so as this massive capital enters our our countries it we have been seeing a great rise in cases of land grabbing both through mega projects of agriculture of energy so of energy including mega dams and also the trend the growing trend of land grabbing through contract farming in which the farmer initially keeps ownership on of his land and is contracted to grow and sell a crop when the crop performs badly or the market is is not good at the time of sale the farmer is the one who undertakes this risk uh, undertakes the de- the debt and in many cases in our regions we have seen farmers losing their lands because it's the only collateral they have to offer a bank for for them to access the credit they need to enter this industrialized food system so they have to have money for uh, fertilizers they have to have money for the chemicals the pesticides for the managing of the land itself so to be pr- profitable you have to use big quantities of land which means machinery fuel so the costs add on and on and on apart from the fact that they have to acquire a lot of knowledge to successfully run a farm in the industrial model
Another aspect is the contradiction or another big challenge that we face nowadays is are the contradictions between the trade and national development policies or agenda of development and the own policies of our countries regarding climate change. In the era of climate change, every country a government in the world is trying to address this in one way or another. And we see in our countries, because of the haphazard way that these things are done, in our region very much, unfortunately. There's no coherence between the climate change policies of the different departments of government, for example, let alone the even greater contradictions between the policy of environmental conservation or social justice compared to the trade policy or the economic policy of the country. So in many ways, the balance is, is tilted towards the interests of big capital, which the conjuncture shows us that they have no real interest in addressing the real causes of climate change, perhaps because the individuals who take part in this feel that it's not a problem for them. Finally, this system, uh, to, I would like to expand a little bit on the point of commodification of the food system. There's also a commodification of the human bodies. This system, as C.D. explained very well, uh, aims to extract the maximum out of the maximum profit out of the production system, so they have to make every single piece, as they call, more efficient, which means cheaper. Mm -hmm. So the way they produce the food is cheaper, which means the quality is less. The way they treat the workers is of less standards, which means that they don't have to buy masks, they don't have to give health insurance, they don't have to give workers their fair rights not only under the national laws, but further as uh, the international agreement of what would be the labor rights of any worker. And this aspect affects particularly women, because women are traditionally, by our uh, patriarchal systems, which takes forms in many ways, according to the different cultures. But women are, because of this patriarchal system that we have, particularly vulnerable, because they are their bodies are used mm. are explored and exploited for the benefit of capital so this new wave of neocolonialization uses patriarchy to extort the maximum profit that it can take from this world which at one layer is profit but as we hope many of us will start to understand there are higher elites that are more interested in power and controlling the flow of money in the economy. And so by that, they, they, they can keep some sort of a stability or progress, which, well, goes beyond my full understanding. We have like at least two more questions that we would like to ask. The first one also goes very much in line what you talked about now, if you could explain how you see the role of EU also in this. Well, I think um, EU is to us a perpetrator in the whole of this process because... Um, you realize that European Union, through the development uh, aid to Africa, especially to East Africa and Kenya, where I come from, is pegged on uh, some conditionalities, which to me are very much neocolonial. For example, they depend on opening up of the markets for dumping of cheap food. You know that uh, the whole subsidy system in the European Union, which again uh, my colleague has talked about, the commodification and uh, of the whole idea of efficiency in food production. So we realize that our markets are opened up to cheap, low-quality food. And apart from even affecting the production system, you realize that the whole idea of health and nutrition 
So to us, you find that the European Union is operated. Like, for example, we have got the EU Economic Partnership Agreement for the East African Community, which East African Community has six countries. That is Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi, and South Sudan. And uh, the whole idea of the Economic Partnership Agreement was is that uh, uh, goods from East Africa should access the EU market. And in exchange, you find that the machinery, pharmaceutical products, the farm inputs can be able to access the East African market. And so far, uh, you realize that Kenya signed it and ratified it, Rwanda signed it, but the other three uh, remaining East African countries have not signed it yet. And you realize that such agreements, you find that they are pegged on conditionalities that oppresses the traditional indigenous food system that places human beings as the real as the, at the backbone of why we are producing this particular mm-hmm. food. The other Red Plus projects, uh, also from the EU, uh, I hope you have heard about these carbon markets and the whole idea of the false promises by the world powers on climate change. And they say that, you know, we have to preserve our forests. And therefore, we have communities in Kenya, like the Sengwer community, uh, which occupies the Embobut forest. This community traditionally since time memorial have been living with the forests and the fact that we have the forest today it means that the communities have been living in the forest sustainably and managing this particular forest and all of a sudden eu says that now we are withholding funding maybe to health programs until this particular community is driven out of the forest these people have known these places as their lands these are community lands they have known them as their homes where do they go to so right now you find that there's a very big conflict a whole lot of community has been displaced women living in the cold in camps in their own country at this time of at this century so it tells you that to us eu is one of the perpetrators or is one of the bodies that must fall we our campaign is that eu must fall and that's why we are very happy when we had brexit we even want we had denmark exiting because these are structures that to us uh, have been created to create the whole idea of free market and to create the whole, the whole idea of um, uh, of weakening national laws that should be protecting us uh, there are many a couple of other issues that i could tell you about eu because of because of time so to me as a farmer i think eu is a project uh, whose time has it has been overtaken by events uh, they have eaten enough they have exploited us enough and that's why we as farmers are now rising up not only to say eu must fall but also leaving the alternative system mm. that is going to deny it uh, maybe that lifeline of seeking to milk uh, resources from us mm. don't know how much i can add to that but i'll try the eu has also been a critical player in pushing forward the paris agreement The Paris Agreement is seen globally as a great achievement, which is that the first time most countries in the world accepted or agreed on something. The problem with the Paris Agreement is that what they agreed on is not enough, and in many ways just serves to keep and maintain the interests and the structures that have taken us to this point in our history as a civilization. The Paris Agreement, one of the key uh, cornerstones of the Paris Agreement is the voluntarily determined contributions in which each country with differentiated responsibilities is required to put forward how much emissions they want to reduce in the next period. The total contributions that came from this process in the, of the countries that are in the Paris Agreement would take us to an increase of average temperature globally of 3 degrees. Now, the scientific consensus tells us that the maximum that we could withstand as humans would be an increase of 1.5 degrees. 
So we see that already this thing, this agreement that has been shaped or marketed as a success is a failed agreement to start with. Also, it proposes a series of false solutions, as were mentioned by my comrade, uh, such as the Red Plus project, such as the Climate Smart Agriculture, Blue Carbon. There are so many geoengineering and and so on and so forth, which are technological fixes. The, the, the proposals are made based on technological fixes to this problem, which is not technological. It's a political problem because the technologies exist today. The technology is to farm the land sustainably, to farm the land without chemicals, right? They are there. The technology is to produce energy sustainably. They are there. So these are just two examples. The, the technology is to distribute goods more effectively, more efficiently are there. It's a, it's a question of political will, which we see that the EU has been a key player in undermining the will of the peoples, even including the European people, of change. Okay, so the final question we want to ask is because we are, of course, a radio that also works with migration and uh, migration politics and migrant struggles. So we also wanted to hear what are your thoughts on how this is connected also with migration and the displacement of people. Well, like you find that why are people migrating from maybe Kenya or Africa to Europe or maybe from Middle East? You see, these are consequences of actions of the EU and its policies. You find that um, if our lands, for example, have been depleted, you see, you find that uh, right now uh, this this whole effort of mining coal, displacing communities from their lands, and you find that um, the whole notion that you see uh, Europe, uh, I mean, is, uh, is the only place that you can find livelihood, and uh, Africa or Kenya is, is, is known, I think it's a narrative, Uh, that again is being perpetuated because how can EU grab land in Kenya mm. when Kenyans come to Europe as as immigrants? So this old narrative that I mean we have to go and look for greener pastures and the, the, the I mean the failure of the system to respond to the needs of the people the the general global I can call it the global financial system mm. uh, that has tentacles at it has captured with its corporate power it has captured governments and these governments no longer invest in basic services like healthcare i mean infrastructure so you find that people who have been dispossessed of their land who have been dispossessed of their livelihoods of their nationality through occupation both physical and even technology wise now have no option and to us even the whole concept of climate justice is the whole concept of climate justice is that those who are responsible those who have destroyed the climate have to be accountable in terms of actually paying. And you see that immigration is, to me, as a person, an end product of that unjust system of an occupation. And uh, it is quite laughable and just and inhuman for EU, I mean, and even the US to start adopting uh, nationalistic, saying, oh, we don't want immigrants in these other countries. Yet their actions are the ones which are responsible for immigration. And that's why I think maybe as I leave my colleague also to continue, is that I believe that or I think the population, the, 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 the grassroots communities in Europe or in the EU zone, as I sometimes tend to think that perhaps they're not aware and I that's why I'm happy what Bridget is doing in terms of raising the awareness of the people that if you are a Danish today paying taxes to the Danish government, which again pays some money to the EU, which goes to kill a mother in Embobut forest. So it means that in a way 
as a taxpayer in Denmark, if you don't speak out against this, then you are also responsible. So we also need to build global solidarity. We need to see, be seeing people saying, not with our taxes. We don't want our taxes to go to buy guns to kill people in Palestine, for example, or to go, to go and kill people in, in Gaza or to go and kill people somewhere in Mozambique or in Kenya. When we see that consciousness emerging from the... So the people of Europe should not also be helpless. They should also be start speaking out and demanding that their, their, their resources or the taxes they are paying do not go into perpetuating this colonial mentality that is oppressing, marginalizing, and commodifying our people, our land, our women, our children, to make them slaves so that they just become tools. Just like machines, they're also part of the production system, but they're not players. Thank you. There are many aspects to this discussion on uh, how or the interlinkage be- between climate change and between the global economic system and migration. But I'll just focus on uh, one small point because Sidi was very clear, very comprehensive in his explanation of this. That climate change, there are already many reasons for forced migrations, dispossession of land, conflict, natural disasters so on and so forth. But what climate change comes, or the lack of economic opportunities in their own communities, uh, lack of uh, basic conditions, really, and the desire for a better life. Uh, But climate change comes to these systems, and we've seen this in our communities. It, It exposes the fractures of the system. It aggravates the limitations of the of the system. So whatever other compounding, whatever other structural uh, reason for this migration, climate change aggravates that even more in forms that many of us don't even comprehend. What it is for, for example, every day you have to walk 20 kilometers to get water for one day because you don't have a way to transport water for two days. Right? And that's basic water to drink. Right? Our people are facing that. All those youth that come across the desert to die in the Mediterranean Sea. Right? There are realities that we don't see. And there are people that are profiting from this reality. Right? And as climate change becomes more and more severe and our region in sub-Saharan Africa is one of the regions that is predicted to be more affected, more impacted by climate change, not only by the severity of the impacts themselves or the, of the climate conditions themselves, but also as these compound on the many uh, limitations and problems that we have within our own countries, right? So it is urgent that the EU, that the main global polluters, and some of them in, are in our regions also, Nigeria or South Africa, the many, these are just to name a few. They need to, there's a need for, for the countries to step up to the plate, right? There are questions that are structural, that challenge the core of the power within our society, but there are urgent things that are of the interest for everyone, Right. So we, as Via Campesina, with the concept of food sovereignty, of climate justice, we particularly, we have a very strong political view on this, and we aim to challenge the system at its core. We hope that people, more people can understand and act up and stand up, make their voices heard, right? And it doesn't mean that you have to agree with us, but this climate change that you think that maybe you see it on the news that Africa is getting dry, it's affecting the people here as well. Our comrades from Ribonda were explaining to us the realities that they're facing in their farms also. There's, there's drought, there's serious drought, there's problems which brings many problems of soil fertility, messing up already a very difficult and production system which 
as industrialized as it is here in Denmark, it needs that stability of the climate. So any change in those climate patterns, particularly as they have been happening recently in Europe inclusive, they have naturally a very big impact on our own, on your own, on of the local people that live in that place. Let's put it that way. So it's, it's high time that we do something. All of us individually, many of us are already there. And we hope and I think honestly that we see that the world sees this direction already. And uh, the fact that more and more people are speaking out, more and more people are trying to do things differently means that uh, somehow we are creating some movement and it's about massifying and amplifying the struggle for justice and for peace for everyone. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Before we round up, I just wanted to hear if you had any final things you wanted to be said. We have a slogan as the Via Campesina, like we say, if I think by John, we say, Viva Fuso Venti, Viva! Viva! Viva Fuso Venti, Viva! Viva! Viva Fuso Venti, Viva! Viva! Yeah, that we need Fuso Venti to take over. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And we as producers, as uh, in the voice of 200 million farmers across the world, we say that we feed the people and we build a movement to change the world. And everyone can join that. The Bridge Radio.